Okay, so welcome to Colloquium this week, everyone. Um, before I let Dawn introduce our speaker, I wanted to remind everyone that Bethany Brookshire will be um, at Colloquium next week, and it will be in person in the 1911 building like we've been doing for our um, out-of-town guest. And if you haven't, this is her book. <laughs> um, you have a week to do your homework and read it. Um, it's called Pest, How Humans Create Animal Villains. And it's, um, I think, a really interesting take on how we um, decide what is a pest and what is not a pest. So for colloquium, she'll be talking a lot about how she writes for the public, the complex scientific ideas for the public. Um, but then at 4.30, she'll be at D.H. Hill Library doing a book reading and book signing event. Um, and that will be in the Fishbowl Forum. And then at 7.30 at the uh, Museum of Natural Science downtown, she'll be doing another event with um, uh, Mike Cove, who is a mammologist at the museum. And they'll also be talking about her book and there will be a book signing there. Um, Quill Ridge Books will be there with books and it will also be covered by C-SPAN. So if you um, are like one of my undergrads and want to get on TV, <laughs> come come to that event. So um, with anyway, um, I think those are all of the major announcements coming up. So that's next week in person in 1911. We will not stream it. So if you want to see it, you have to come in person. Uh, we'll have a lunch afterwards. Uh, there will be a lunch afterwards. And if you're unable to come in person, but do want to see it, the video will be available online following the event. It just won't be live. Um, okay. So now Don will introduce our speaker for today. Thanks, Jen. So I'm very excited that we have Dr. Zachary Brown, maybe formal who, as you all know, is an associate professor of agricultural and resource economics. He's on the executive committee of the Genetic Engineering and Society Center. He's also faculty affiliate for CENREP, the Center for Environmental and Resource. Uh, and he is. Okay, technical difficulties here. So the co-PI of NSF, uh, NRT, Ag Biofuse, and uh, a fun fact that he lived in Paris for two years as an economist for the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. So today's presentation will be in French. Surprise. <laughs> Just kidding. Another fun fact, normally when we have colloquium online, Zach is on his treadmill or his stationary bike. Uh, listening and participating. But today, since he is giving the presentation, that won't be happening. Uh, thank you, Zach, for coming and talking to us. Today, we're going to hear about the benefit of cost analysis and alternatives for evaluating biotechnology policy. Thank you. Thanks, Don. And uh, yeah, another fun fact is that uh, I couldn't give this presentation in French if I wanted to, and I managed to leave OECD uh, despite my best efforts without learning uh, hardly any French, <laughs> even though I really tried. It's just a really hard language. Uh, anyway, so thank you uh, for having me today. Uh, looking forward to, to talking about this topic with you all. Uh, I'm going to follow the, the normal format for these colloquia and uh, speak for about 30 minutes and then um, hopefully generate some good discussion for the remainder of the colloquium. So I'm an economist. Uh, a lot of people, when they 
talk to economists. They think benefit cost analysis. So I've decided I might as well just go for the to the heart of the matter and talk exactly. I'll give you what you want to hear from an economist, talk about benefit at cost analysis a little bit. Um, and it is a topic, actually, I've been uh, increasingly thinking about and working on in my research. And uh, I think there's some interesting potential ways that it um, has some direct relevance for biotechnology and, um, you know, genetic engineering and whatnot that's, that's relevant for this. So. Uh, so I'll be t I'll be talking about uh, benefit cost analysis, some of its limitations, and um, and how it may or may not apply. I think that's for you to judge uh, in this in biotechnology here. So let me see if I can advance my slides. I had everything up here a second ago. There we go. Okay. All right. So uh, outline for the part the portion. Uh, I'm sorry, sorry, Zach. Yeah. yeah. You actually need to share your slides. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, was, I thought I had everything up, but then, yeah. There we go. Thank you. Can you see it now? Yes, we can yes. see yes. it. Okay, great. All right, so uh, here's the outline for what I'll be talking about. Um, so, let's see. First, the first part of this is I'm just going to provide basically a brief summary of benefit cost analysis uh, in terms of the history and mainly the U.S. government. I mean, it's it's a um, form of policy analysis that's been used around the world uh, by a lot of different uh, governments and other entities. Um, so it would be more than what I could do today to present all of that, obviously. Um, but I think a lot of its uh, development for policy application was in the U.S. federal government. So I'll talk a little bit about the history of that, as well as its history uh, in economic thought and how economists think about benefit cost analysis in terms of what it what it's telling us uh, and what it's not. Um, so then I'll, I'll talk about the limitations and inconsistencies in the applications of benefit cost analysis. Um, this is something you know. I hope I'm trying to economists study this type of thing quite a bit and like understand. I think in general understand um, some well known limitations of benefit cost analysis, but that I don't think are widely appreciated among uh, broader public or com other communities. So that's part of my goal today is just to try to communicate that. Um, and then I will turn it to biotech uh, governance and think about how benefit cost analysis may or may not apply in that context and uh, what some other alternatives that specifically pertain to biotech uh, governance are. Um, what other alternatives have been uh, proposed for, for that space. And then I'll provide an example, uh, sort of mini benefit cost analysis, just to kind of like, uh, I always find in my teaching, you know, give an, app, give an example, a concrete example application. And so I'll use something from my own research uh, to, to sort of demonstrate some of the issues that I'll be talking about. Okay, keep an eye on my time here. All right, so uh, what is benefit cost analysis? You can, a lot of people would answer this question in a lot of different ways, but so here's my answer for what it consists of. So for simplicity, let's think about just a single policy. Let's label it A, um, and, and we're basically evaluating the net benefits of that policy or whether, if we're thinking about the normative question, whether it would be a good idea to, to undertake this policy or not. Um, so fundamentally, a benefit cost analysis would ask three questions of this policy. Who gains from it? Who loses? And by how much? 
So, they, and again, this is my answer. This is what I've concluded over time studying this, that I think this is like the key part of, from a public policy perspective and a policy analysis perspective, these are the three questions that, that are really at the forefront of what we should be answering with this analysis. So the who part of these questions is really critical for thinking about benefit cost analysis and public policy uh, in terms of like, you know, some people are going to get the benefits and some people are going to get the cost. Some people may get both, but really understanding the distribution of this, of those gains and losses is, in my opinion, uh, one of the more powerful products that you can get from a benefit cost analysis at the end of the day. Um, the how much is really the technical challenge for economists because uh, it basically forces us into a situation about looking at the gains to the beneficiaries and the losses to the to the, to the harmed parties, and and thinking about well, is it are the gains to those beneficiaries worth worth the losses to um, to the others? And that's a very difficult question to answer. And I'll, and you know, in some sense, it maybe is impossible to technically answer because um, it involves social values. So here's a brief history of how this how BCA's sort of been practiced and where it's, I mean, it's been fraught uh, with lots of debate since its inception, uh, but it really, so there's a nice, there's a couple of papers that talk about the history of benefit cost analysis in the U.S. government. Uh, this one in 2009, Lanny Econ, I think is a nice discussion. Um, so it, it brings a lot of this up, but uh, it began from a, you know, outside of not an academic space, but in an actual policy space, it began, most people chart it to this 1936 Flood Control Act. Uh, looking at flood control projects and and judging those projects by whether the benefits uh, really trying to evaluate whether the benefits of those projects uh, exceeded the, the estimated costs. And once that once those the evaluation of the flood control projects got underway, then the demand really for uh, benefit cost analysis increased throughout uh, the latter half of the 20th century. Um, in particular with flood risk, because there was a lot of economic development going on and, and there were large, uh, you know, dam projects and whatnot. Um, so really from a policy perspective, uh, and because the Army Corps was responsible for uh, managing or evaluating, undertaking these projects, the Army, the Army Corps really became a agency that was kind of at the, uh, the, the early, I don't know about the earliest, but the first major agency that was uh, that was undertaking benefit cost analysis. And so they have their own protocols for doing this um, that have been developed over, you know, almost a century now. The modern era for benefit cost analysis really began with the Reagan administration, Reagan administration um, and, and then the Clinton administration with these executive orders. Um, and they basically were required uh, some form of benefit cost analysis in, in U.S. federal government policymaking. Um, when you look at sort of a lot of these analyses are not really called, uh, the technical jargon for them is not, not benefit cost analysis. They call these regulatory impact analyses, um, but, but these RIAs are effectively where the benefit cost analysis is being conducted um, in the U.S. federal government. Um, so I think this was an interesting quote because I think a question in this in this history is why is this why why conduct this analysis is are you actually going to you know if you find that the net benefits are positive should you actually go ahead and undertake the project or not uh, or is it just a descriptive uh, exercise to try to understand you know where the benefits and costs of a of a possible policy are 
And um, I think that's a question that never is really has been fully res uh, resolved. So there's sort of normative aspects, potential normative uses of benefit cost analysis, as well as just you know descriptive uses potentially. So this quote from Bonzoff, 2009, was characterizing a, a debate uh, in the 1960s among economists uh, about whether policy analysts were to simply make the relevant trade-offs known to policymakers who had the ultimate authority to make the political judgments, or whether the policy analysts could make could actually make normative recommendations and ultimately judge the decisions of policymakers. And yeah, I think that tension has been present throughout. And really, this is like a core part of one part of economics is, you know, do we, we can, you know, we're, we can estimate values and all of these uh, economic aspects in our, in our work, um, but how much of that, how much of our analysis, our academic analysis, uh, you know, from, from my position, how much weight should that carry uh, from a normative perspective with policymakers? Because I think a lot of, in a lot of other disciplines, we think about, you know, scientists providing evidence for, for them policymakers to carry out. But there's a, uh, in economics, there's sort of this crucible of value that we, we ha uh, have to think about, depending on the type of analysis we're doing. Okay, so um, here's how economists, I think, from kind of a conceptual perspective, for example, how this is typically taught um, in economics courses. Uh, of what, you know, what is benefit cost analysis? So the challenge here, remember I said the, the three questions to answer were who, who gains, who loses, and how much? And how much is really the difficult part from, a, from, the, from an economic analysis perspective. So we can't get directly comparable measures of how happy the winners are from a policy versus how sad the losers are um, in economics jargon. We can't directly observe and compare individuals' utility. Um, so what do we do instead? So the, the idea with benefit cost analysis or, you know, the, the theoretical underpinnings of this are to measure these gains and losses in terms of equivalent changes to a numerator good, um, which this has been called the measuring rod of money. Basically put this into an observable common unit so we can have apples to apples comparisons of the benefits and costs. So the theoretical basis for this that has been advanced in economics, but again, it typically comes up in textbooks, are these two tests. Well, actually, it's typically referred to as one test, but it actually is two potential tests, as I'll explain in a minute. But the basic test is, could the winners from the policy compensate the losers so that no one is left worse off? So if, if, they, if the winners can, uh, if they're willing to pay the losers, potentially, uh, and the losers say, oh, okay, that's enough that's enough uh, money for me to accept this policy, um, then that would, that would in some sense pass the benefit cost analysis. So this is, this is sometimes called, this is, these are the Calder-Hicks tests. Uh, sometimes you'll hear this referred to as the uh, potential Pareto optimality, is, you know, more economics jargon. Um, but these Calder-Hicks, this Calder-Hicks criterion is usually referred to as a single criterion, but actually it's two possible tests. And this was hashed out in the early 20th century. So the Caldor test, named after uh, that economist, uh, is also referred to as compensating variation. And this test would be, okay, would the winners from this policy be willing to pay the losers an amount that they would be willing to accept the policy change from the status quo? Um, so that's one possible way to, con to conduct this test. 
Alternatively, the Hicks test, also known as equivalent variation, is a test asking whether the losers from the policy would be willing to pay an amount that the winners would be willing to accept to forfeit the policy, to forego the policy change uh, and keep the status quo. So, so there's you can I hope that you can appreciate you can there's two measures here. There's willingness to pay and willingness to accept. There's always a question of compensation. Can the beneficiaries of the policy or the beneficiaries from the status quo pay the losers uh, in either condition so that they're uh, no worse off? And so these are basically two alternative ways to conduct benefit cost analysis. And they are not, it's been known uh, for a long time that these are not necessarily equivalent. Okay, so those are, those are the, that's the basic conceptual basis for how economists think about this. Um, economists also know that there are major problems both with BCA in general and in particular with these Calder-Hicks tests. Um, first of all, that there's the question, I just, I just presented two alternative tests, so which one should, should you use? And if you look back at these tests and think for a moment, in the first case, the winners are having to pay the losers to obtain the policy change. And that in some sense uh, affords primacy to the, uh, to the losers to, to the status quo. So the losers have a right to the status quo with the Calder test or the compensating variation test. Whereas with the Hicks test, the losers actually have to pay the winners from the policy change to retain the status quo. So if the losers want to keep the current situation, they have to actually pay to retain it. So in that sense, uh, the Hicks test basically affords rights to the beneficiaries of the policy. And uh, it really depends on the policy you're talking about as to whether this seems, whether this is ju a just outcome or not. So in terms of which test to use, that, that, that decision has, uh, potential, is potentially consequential for rights and justice how we think about um, yeah, the ethics of, of these different outcomes. Um, another obvious issue here is that this is just an analysis. It's not an actual um, compensation that occurs. So compensation doesn't have to occur uh, and, and that can obviously be problematic. Uh, so, you know, for, for example, I, as I teach in my classes sometimes, you can construct a benefit cost analysis where the net benefits of, of theft are positive. And obviously, that's <laughs> that doesn't mean we would want that. That's a socially beneficial uh, outcome. Um, and in general, economists have known that this type of approach to welfare evaluation uh, doesn't reflect social value, uh, or you know, doesn't reflect the social value of greater equity. So it really one of the well-known, probably the best well-known issues with benefit cost analysis is that there's no there's no built-in value for quality or equity um, in, this, in this framework. So all you get is some type of, uh, the way we typically think about this is you get some type of economic efficiency measure from benefit cost analysis, but, uh, but you, don't get, you don't get this, um, there's, no, there's no value to equity in it. So that's, that being one of the biggest recognized problems has generated over many years, uh, potential alternatives for or two benefit cost analysis to try to account for equity and equality. And so these are, you can really divide these approaches. I mean, I don't, I don't have time to go into a lot of this, but uh, a lot of this work really is about trying to um, quantitatively or mathematically operationalize concepts of 
of of you know equity having social value. So we you know we, it's easy to say equity has social value, but the question is from a public policy perspective, like how much how much is equity worth versus efficiency? So you'll often hear discussions of like an equity efficiency trade off in various contexts. So um, so these welfareist approaches basically explicitly are are mathematical uh, modeling techniques for explicitly building in a social value for equity into this uh, into a benefit cost type calculation. The problem with these welfare approaches, the challenge with them is that uh, you essentially have to impose a number for how much equality or, or how much fairness is worth in these approaches. And that leaves the question at the end of the day, well, who determines what that number should be? Um, and that's a thorny question. We can return to discussion discussing if you want uh, later. Um, so the alter and there are some other alternatives. So welfareist is this is this basically you have to drop in a number for what's the social value of of fairness. Uh, non welfareist approaches do exist. Um, so the, the one that I'm the most well aware of, uh, basically, would the approach here is to take a stand on some common observable ideal. So if you're in a health context, if you're looking at health policy, you might sort of have a commonly agreed uh, depiction or ideal of what, what ideal health looks like, someone in perfect health, uh, and then essentially use an income equivalent distance from that ideal as, as a yardstick. So um, you, you can, it may not be clear from this, from how I'm explaining this, but you can build in uh, concepts of equity when you uh, take this approach. So, the, and the, the key thing is that so society essentially has to agree on what that ideal is, um, which at least that's more objective than than maybe a mathematical number just depicting fair, you know, a mathematical measure of fairness. Um, so my recent work here, uh, what I've focused on is that original recipe, what I would call original recipe benefit cost analysis, turns out it is sensitive to inequity and inequality, uh, which is not, it's not, this is not this property is not commonly recognized, um, but it's also not, I would say it's not sensitive in a good way. Um, so in particular, what happens here is that uh, with benefit cost analysis, the sensitive, this uh, inequality will affect the outcome of the analysis potentially for two reasons that kind of interact with one another. So the first aspect here is that uh, diminish of is this property of diminishing marginal utility from various goods. So um, you know, if I have a lot of money, one more dollar is probably not going to be worth that relatively that much to me versus if I have, don't have much money and, uh, then, you know, the marginal value of a dollar goes farther. So this is, this is a property that's built into basically economic models. And it's not just for money, but it also applies to like environmental quality, health, um, other consumption goods. Um, so that's one aspect that generates the sensitivity. The other is that when we aggregate willingness to pay, because the question really is for the Calder-Hicks test, if we add up the total willingness to pay of the beneficiaries uh, and ask whether that outweighs the willing, is greater than the uh, total willingness to accept of the harmed parties, in the case of the Hicks test anyways, um, we have to aggregate that. We have to sum all of those values up. And that aggregation step actually in combination, so if you do this diminishing marginal utility, property, and then combined with aggregation, it generates uh, a, basically some, um, some odd results, as I'll show you. 
let's see if I can get through this this picture in a couple minutes here. So this is a picture from an image from a publication that I came out recently uh, where I was looking at this. So this is a simple benefit cost analysis of a hypothetical analysis of a of an environmental policy. Um, the situation, the setting is that there are two individuals uh, who are one one of whom is uh, is basically going to gain from this policy, and the other is uh, is losing, is experiencing a loss in utility. Uh, I'm going to look at uh, this figure looks at three different policies uh, that that have the following properties. So. All three policies affect each individual's well-being in the same way. And so this can be seen, so the top right quadrant of this figure shows uh, indifference curves. So we use these in economics a lot. So on the uh, y-axis, we have, of the upper right quadrant, we've got the environmental quality uh, that, the, that the individual one uh, experiences, and we've got their income on the x-axis. And so these indifference curves reflect all combinations of points on the same curve where an individual is indifferent about these outcomes. So any point on this curve is, leaves the individual just as well off as any other point on this curve. And then as you move away from the origin, you have, other, you have indifference curves that yield higher utility. So this is where my cursor is here, this, uh, any points on this curve are less preferred to, to the first individual compared to the points on this higher curve where my cursor is now. So it's really like a contour map. This is how we explain this in, in, when we're teaching economics is imagine like a contour map of a mountain and you're trying to ascend the mountain to higher levels of utility basically. Um, and so this individual here, the idea is that they're, they actually start on this upper curve and then the policies, uh, the policy, what, the different policies that I'm considering decrease their utility. So they move from an upper curve to a lower curve. So this individual is is uh, is basically losing out from from these policies. The individual in the bottom left quadrant is a beneficiary. So they begin on this lower on their lower indifference curve, and then they end up on this higher indifference curve. And there's three different policies with three different possible outcomes. So the left quadrant here is basically the different combinations of environmental quality that are produced by this policy. The status quo policy is where my cursor is here. So this is the, the status quo level of environmental quality for both individuals. In this case, they're basically, they appear to have equal levels of environmental quality. And then they move out to the, the policy produces three possible different levels of environmental quality combinations. So QW means that the, uh, the winner from this policy gets a higher level of utility, or they get higher levels, they uh, disproportionately gain environmental quality. Q, Q prime means that individual one uh, disproportionately gains, and then uh, Q tilde here in the middle basically shows a situation where they, um, they equally gain environmental quality. And then in the bottom right quadrant here, these are the different income levels that essentially keep the utility levels uh, for these three policies the same. So what I look at here is basically these Calder-Hicks tests that I just described, willingness to pay and willingness to accept for the beneficiaries. Um, in particular, so 
in policy Q double prime, or the 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 double so Q, the, the one of these there's three different policies here, as I said, um, but Q double prime has an interesting feature. So when we calculate the willingness to pay and willingness to accept for these two individuals, um, we find that under the Calder test, the um, willingness to pay. So the willingness to pay under the so if actually let me put let me put it this way. If we do the Hicks test, we see that the willingness to accept for the um, for this individual is greater than the willingness to pay. So that means that um, that the policy actually passes, right? If you were to use the Hicks test, then this policy would actually pass, and you end up at this new policy. Q, so you move from Q to Q double prime. Um, now you can imagine that. Now you're at this new situation. Well, you could then use the Calder test to evaluate whether to change back to this, uh, this original status quo policy. And if you did that, then the Calder test would say, yeah, we should go back to this policy. So you end up in this particular case cycling. But if you were to do sequential cost-benefit analysis, do the cost-benefit analysis status quo to Q double prime, the cost-benefit analysis with the Hicks test would say, yeah, let's do this. So you change, and then if you end up at this new policy and use that same criterion again, then you'd return back to the status, the benefit cost analysis would say, let's go back to the status quo. And you would just infinitely loop around here without any resolution. So this is this was this type of um, sort of pathological cycling was noted in like the 1940s that this can come out of benefit cost analysis. So you really have a essentially an indeterminate criteria here. And this is arising really for the same reason that the Calder and the Hicks test are, uh, yield different implications uh, when you do this analysis. So what does this mean for uh, equity and inequality that I, I noted earlier? So basically what the, the paper I published shows is that um, this type of logic implies that uh, increasing inequity in the policy outcome. So if you have a policy that produces very disparate impacts on across the population, uh, where there may be concentrated benefits or concentrated harms. Um, as those benefits become increasingly, if the poli policies that have more inequity um, are, are more likely to yield conflicting outcomes from this BCA uh, using, this, using these two tests. And so in the extreme case, in this bottom, uh, bottom left uh, figure and this, uh, what circle, this area that's circled here, so these figures are showing on the x-axis, the fraction of population that's subject to an environmental impact. So it may be a positive impact or a negative impact. And then uh, on the, on the y-axis here, these are proportional changes of uh, in mean income. And these are these, the lines being plotted are basically the thresholds for how much the mean income has to, to change in order to pass a benefit cost test. And the, dot, the solid line is using the Hicks criterion, and the EV line, the uh, dotted line is using the um, the Calder criteria. Or, or sorry, the Calder, the CV is the solid line, and the dotted line is EV. And in the most extreme scenario, when the and when the policy has really, really concentrated impacts, then basically any policy any policy would pass a Calder BCA 
and no policy passes a Hicks BCI. So you get this extreme divergence, essentially useless benefit cost analysis. So one of the conclusions of this is that um, either in a situation where the where there's a lot of pre-existing inequality in society, or from a policy that has very uh, very very unequal, or if with a high amount of inequity in the outcomes, um, those types of those types of scenarios are more likely to make benefit cost analysis essentially render it much less useful. So this uh, this type of thing is yeah. Um, so BCA is usually practiced in the context of really, relatively small, what economists would call marginal um, aggregate effects that we often, so in a case where we have these kind of marginal aggregate effects, we often think of being able, to, we being economists often think about being able to conduct benefit cost analysis by simply multi multiplying by some relevant price. So for environmental quality, if you're thinking about like um, particulate matter, PM 2.5, you might think about the dollars of damages per unit of PM 2.5 as being sort of a price of PM 2.5. Um, that would be an example of a marginal value. But with an inequity or inequality, policy changes with small average effects can have large non-marginal effects on some uh, populations. Uh, so think marginalized or privileged groups in societies. And the willing, in particular, the willingness to accept of among those populations. So, you know, if you think about the two point, PM 2.5 example, well, you might have a small average, you know, there might be relatively modest changes in mean PM 2.5, but those, the, that air, those air pollution changes might be concentrated in some communities at higher levels. And the willingness to accept for those communities to, to tolerate that type of uh, environmental injury might be much larger than the kind of marginal analysis would suggest. So why could this matter? So with actual empirical work, uh, generally when economists are doing these types of uh, actual, actually measuring these, you know, benefits, non-market benefits, environmental valuation doesn't typically do uh, a very good job of measuring these extreme willingness to accept values on subpopulations. And so some of the examples that this would be relevant for, uh, one of the ones that was kind of the spark for this research was the Deepwater Horizon uh, oil spill. So there were benefit cost analyses done for that, or, or at least uh, natural resource damage assessments that were done as part of that uh, in the follow aftermath of that spill. Um, but the way that the economic analysis was done was sort of more of this, um, it didn't, I would say, my read of it, it didn't really provide an assessment of sort of the extreme some of the extreme effects on small community, relatively small communities, um, but you know that who might have had much, you know, a large willingness to accept those damages. Climate change is another one uh, where this could be relevant, and the same could be true for biotech gover governance potentially, uh, to the extent that maybe willingness to accept. There may be some people might have pretty high willingness to accept. Uh, you know, they might, yeah, high willingness to accept to have GMOs basically. Um, so just to come back to biotech policy, uh, so I mentioned early on in the history of uh, benefit cost analysis in the U.S. federal government, uh, sort of the modern era began with the Reagan and Clinton executive orders. Um, those have essentially remain, remained in place. So the Trump administration moved away from those executive orders a little bit. Well, not a little bit. They moved away from those. Uh, but then the Biden administration has basically returned to the pre-Trump situation. 
Um, there's other agencies, there's a couple of agencies that are relevant for conducting these benefit cost analyses within the federal government. So Office of Management and Budget, Budget uh, Congressional Budget Office, as well as uh, in the EPA, there's a National Center for Environmental Economics that is responsible, does a lot of work on uh, non-market valuation for environmental uh, impacts. So specifically in biotech governance, so we've got the coordinated framework. Um, and all the various federal government statutes that are implicated within the coordinated framework. Um, so FIFRA, the federal uh, or the Food Insect Federal Insecticide Fungicide Rodenticide Act, uh, is a risk benefit statute. So in theory, that is uh, benefit cost analysis. In theory, would be more applicable here. Although the actual use of BCAs uh, specifically under FIFRA is uh, still rather limited, on my read, anyways. Uh, Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act is a risk-only statute, so it typically uh, is not really oriented towards benefit cost analysis. Uh, TOSCA, a Toxic Substances Control Act, uh, uses an unreasonable risk criterion that uh, effectively also doesn't, um, doesn't really invoke benefit cost analysis. The National Environmental Policy Act requires under, uh, for, you know, uh, requires the assessment of environmental uh, impacts. Um, so that doesn't necessarily require a benefit cost analysis, although it's relevant for benefit cost analysis because the environmental impacts that come out of NEPA uh, are then, in, th in theory, would be would provide inputs into a benefit cost analysis to put essentially dollar values on those environmental impacts. Um, there's a new and upcoming policy. So we have SECURE. Um, there hasn't been any as far as I'm aware, any formal benefit cost analysis of any aspects of uh, secure, uh, but they could be, but BCA could be relevant um, for for a couple of aspects of that rule. So, in particular, uh, Georgia, of the um, the first cohort of the Ag Biofuse uh, program, wrote a really, in my opinion, a really nice paper uh, looking at um, filings, you know, previous filings for. Um, uh, biotech regulation, but they they discuss in that paper they discuss uh, one of the issues with with these filings and in particular with disclosure of um, uh, of this uh, under the under this the previous regulatory framework and under secure, so BCA could be relevant for looking at disclosure of um, you know traits and whatnot under that act. Um, as well as enforcement, uh, potential enforcement. So there's a lot of, basically, there's a lot of questions about how SECURE is going to get implemented, and potentially BCA would be in a good position to kind of evaluate certain aspects of that. Um, another potential policy that I think would be <laughs> probably deserve a BCA, or at least a regulatory impact analysis. So as we've discussed previously in the colloquium, there's this uh, bioeconomy executive order that came out last year. Uh, and then recently, there now there's, um, I shouldn't say, WHO, that should just say WH for White House. So there's the White House recently released this biomanufacturing report, um, which is essentially looking at like industrial policy for the bioeconomy and for biotechnology and biomanufacturing. And so there's a lot of implications there um, that, you know, or I would think warrant an evaluation, evaluation of the benefits and costs of those, what, what's being considered. Um, it's also worth mentioning that some there's been there has been some benefit cost analyses of uh, other related technologies that uh, so this group has talked a lot about gene drives in the past so sterile insect 
a sterile insect technique uh, is a precursor technology to um, it's been a, you know it doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily biotechnology although it increasingly is um, but they have benefit cost analysis is, is has has been applied to SIT uh, on a number of occasions. I could go into more detail about that, but there's a chapter about that. Um, let's see. Okay. So um, I'll keep this slide short. I won't go through everything here, but it is worth mentioning that when you're talking about biotechnologies, uh, biotechnology and GMOs, oftentimes a, a foil that's sort of posed uh, against the benefit cost analysis is the precautionary principle. It's kind of an alternative criterion. Um, so yeah, in the EU particularly, it's invoked as a BCA alternative. Um, I won't, you know, basically the idea with the precautionary principle is that um, a lack of this, what this says here, lack of scientific evidence uh, is not a justification for uh, for inaction. But, so there's a lot of um, there's a lot of issues with the implementation of of the precautionary principle as a as a quantitative evaluation tool. Uh, there's a paper that essentially uh, equates this, the precautionary principle, to the use of option value, uh, which is a well-known uh, concept in economics. Um, my interpretation here, I just, you know, because I, I wouldn't be surprised if some folks are thinking about the precautionary principle in this context. So my interpretation for what the precautionary principle offers us is that essentially it's a critique of poorly practiced benefit cost analysis because a properly practiced benefit cost analysis should account for information, uncertainty, risk aversion, and potential irreversibilities, all of all the things that essentially the precautionary principle is trying to highlight uh, and, and raise in prominence. Um, but, the, but neither the precautionary principle, well, the precautionary principle doesn't really offer a, um, a coherent way to address this other issue of just like how much the, the, to the winners gain versus the losers. So it doesn't really get at that question any better than benefit cost analysis does. Um, okay, so I will I will um, just show show this quickly. So here's a micro micro example I did with a student a couple of years ago looking at the consumer welfare um, implications of gene drives use in agriculture. So uh, we were looking at CRISPR-based gene drives in agricultural invasive species. None of this still has not actually been used yet. Um, but because sort of original recipe gene drives are designed to spread in an unlimited fashion throughout the entire landscape, uh, once this drive was released, our thinking at the time was, if you release a gene drive for agricultural invasive species control, then uh, potentially it would be permanently in the environment. Uh, and so that it would be everywhere, essentially. So if gene drives spread everywhere, consumers may not be able to find uh, basically any products in the market, in the supermarket that would be produced without them. So consumers who don't uh, who don't care about gene drives, uh, that would they would be fine with that. They would benefit potentially from lower prices and less pesticide use, so they would potentially gain. But consumers who do care about gene drives uh, may be harmed because they would no longer be able to find products in the supermarket that that didn't involve their use. So to look at this question quantitatively, we did a, uh, a what's called a choice experiment in economics, uh, which was basically meant to simulate a grocery store uh, purchases or gro grocery store purchase scenario. We looked at blueberries and orange juice um, and, the, and two invasive species that are associated with each of those. 
Um, so very, very quickly, you know, we basically use the data from that choice experiment to look at consumer preferences uh, for gene drive, for the gene drive aspect of these products as well as the other aspects. And what we found was that on average, consumer consumers placed uh, lower discounts on the gene drive aspect of the product as compared to whether the product was a uh, was actually like a GMO in terms of having a GM plant involved in production, uh, as well as the gene drive was was more desirable than increased uh, pesticide use. However, uh, minorities, uh, so only 28% of blueberry consumers and 25% of OJ consumers uh, had any significant negative weight that they placed on gene drive. So, you know, not uh, a minority of, of, the, of the sample seemed to care about this particular product attribute. So on that basis, just based on raw numbers, you might say, okay, well, what's the problem then? Only if, you know, only a minority of people care about this technology and you know have any negative association with this technology so really we're, we're we're fine as far as the consumers go well that doesn't really get at the question of how much because um, it may be as we found that the consume the minority of consumers who didn't like gene drives really didn't like them um, had a relatively high willingness to pay to avoid them so when we did the policy analysis um, we looked at the so if we thought about an uncontrolled gene drive release after pest invasion, um, then what's, what are the consequences of that release? Well, the product prices would go back, in theory, if it was an effective gene drive, the product prices would basically be able to go back to their pre-invasion baseline because the pest was eliminated. Uh, the conventional spray level would return to its pre-invasion spray level, so uh, farmers would be spraying less because the, the pest, there was much less pests to spray for. Um, Non-GD products are no longer available because the gene drive has spread throughout the environment. So those are the conditions that we're looking at in this scenario. And when we evaluate that, as I indicated, so under that situation for blueberries, 75% uh, of consumers would get a gain in consumer surplus. Uh, for in the blueberry case, 81% in orange juice. Um, the, of the beneficiaries, so those 75%, each of those beneficiaries would get a gain on average of 41 cents for blueberries and 70 cent, 77 cents for orange juice per grocery grocery trip. So that's a pretty modest gain per grocery trip, less than a dollar uh, per trip. Uh, however, for the people who lost out, for the people who don't like gene drives, essentially, um, the other 25% uh, for blueberries, they would have a loss of $4.50 per trip. Uh, and this is because they can't find non-gene drive alternatives in the supermarket any longer. Uh, and that's for blueberries and $3.43 for orange juice. And so when you aggregate this, you've got the 41 cent gain for 75% of the population and then a 4.50 loss for the other part of the rest of the population. You end up with, with a net average change in consumer surplus of 81 cents uh, per trip loss. So for blueberries, basically the deployment of this gene drive would reduce uh, aggregate consumer surplus because the minority here is getting such a, has such a high uh, loss associated with this. For orange juice, we basically found a null effect. So there was essentially no, gain, no statistically significant gain or loss. Um, yeah, so that's, 
basically all I have. The only thing I would leave out here for discussion, uh, put out here for discussion is, um, you know, how, how do we, how should we think about this? I mean, if we're not going to do benefit cost analysis, um, surely some type of quantitative actionable policy evaluation is needed. Uh, and we need that in general for policy analysis, but including for biotech policies. A key step in BCA is monetiza monetization. So putting essentially dollar, dollar values on environmental uh, benefits and risks. This gives us values in comparable units, but what exactly does that achieve? Is there any utility from that exercise? I'm kind of, this is like an existential question for my discipline I'm putting out to this group. Um, yeah, and the practical question I, I continue to be interested in is for potentially large scale policies, you know, how do we think about what should, how do we think about the willingness to pay versus the willingness to accept of the beneficiaries versus the injured parties? And as I alluded to earlier, the choice of those measures uh, has ethical imp implications for the rights of different stakeholders, either to the status quo or to the new state of the world. Okay, so I've only got 10 minutes left, but hopefully we got some discussion. Thank you, Zach. That was um, that was interesting. So, um, as always, we will uh, let people use the raise your hand function if you want to ask your question directly. If you would like me to read your question for you, just put it in the chat and I'll read it on your behalf. Um, and for everyone who is following along, um, Fred, uh, link to Zach's article um, in the chat. Okay, Jeff Thorne says, I think you addressed this in your presentation, but I was not quick enough to digest it. How does good BCA account for uncertainty and policy impact? Can't policy decisions be analyzed via probabilistic decision theory? Um, so, yeah, so probabilistic, I would say that, um, so good BCA, uh, so when you're talking about uncertainty and probability, uh, if you're familiar with decision theory, which it sounds like you are, then expected utility theory is the type of framework that's used in that context. And when you're practicing BCA in, in that context, in theory, your uh, willingness to pay and willingness to accept measures that are, from an economist perspective, these are the primal ingredients into a benefit cost analysis. Those willingness to pay and willingness to accept measures should emerge from an expected utility framework or should be calculated using that framework, which builds risk, uh, risk aversion in to that. So the willingness to pay and willingness to accept measures that come out of that should be reflecting the risk aversion that's built into that. Um, yeah, and so also, you know, the way this is typically practiced is you'll hear, you know, expected net present value is kind of the key criterion for benefit cost analysis. Um, although I don't, I don't, that type of approach or that type of view on benefit cost analysis doesn't, I don't think does a particularly good job of like reflecting the distribution across different stakeholders of the benefits and costs. Okay, uh, Jean has her hand up. So you, you need to unmute, Jean. Um, I want to say thank you uh, for a talk that I may have even understood. Uh, I was worried. I was worried I wasn't being understood. So it's hard on Zoom. I'm always afraid I'm not being understood on Zoom. But, yeah. yeah, we can talk about that. That's a separate issue. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, so um, I come from a field that recognizes multiple kinds of reasons 
and thinks that the kind of reasons that you're discussing are one kind, like utilitarian or consequentialist, but that there's at least two other major kinds of reasons that are really evident in public discourse and in everyday people's reasoning about um, what to do. Uh, something more deontological, like duties, responsibilities, and then something related to identity or honor. And it strikes me that the places where your charts, you know, like <laughs> where people fall off your chart, they have like infinite resistance or infinite mm -hmm. love of something. Yeah, exactly. It's because they're reasoning about it not, I mean, it doesn't, they're not playing the, the utilitarian game. They don't care about consequences. They care about um, honor, uh, justice, these other things that that aren't monetizable. You okay? Yeah, you guys can monetize them, but in mm -hmm. actual practice, they just it doesn't work really well. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I guess the, thing, the only thing I would say about that is that the place where you were saying they were falling off the measure, falling off a cliff in terms of those measures or whatever. I mean, that actually was emerging from the mathematical framework that economists would typically use for this. So it's, so there's no, there's nothing built into that about, I, I'm not saying those are invalid concerns at all. I mean, it makes perfect. I mean, I think that's, that's also an important part of the policy evaluate of thinking about public policy, but, but it's, I think it's interesting just that even if you put benefit cost analysis on its own utilitarian terms, part of the point of that analysis is that it breaks down on its own basis, which was kind of, I mean, I'm not sure how much other economists appreciate that, the point that I'm making, because it's kind of deconstructing that framework, but yeah. So in, in empirical policy analysis um, needs to account for those other kinds of reasons. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't say that, I mean, I, I don't think I said anywhere in my presentation that, that, that I think benefit cost analysis is the main thing that should even be the main thing that you use on the, for the basis of policy you know, deciding which whether to undertake a policy. I would. I mean, that's not some. That's not a point I'm making at all. I. I think the question really is just that. What do we? What's the utility of the exercise? And also, you know, if you. Part of the point is is what I was making in that paper is just if you construct if you if you conduct a benefit cost analysis one way, then you'll get one answer. And if you conduct it another way, you'll get completely the opposite answer. And that's just worth being aware of. And that's kind of my my basic point there. But I, I yeah, I'm not advanced. I mean, I do have a question for the audience. And I, is it useful at all? Is a different question is, is it should it be the main thing, which is a complete which is a different question? Yeah. Um, okay, I was muted. But the, the we have a question from Dominic in the chat. It says interesting example of BCA was spotted when Drosophila. Is there any way to model the cost and benefit to a farmer in there? Also, what about cost and benefit to ag industry, environment, et cetera? Yeah, so that's, I think, I don't know if I, I didn't emphasize this when I spoke, but I, I hope I, it was in the slides at one. Um, this is just a, that was just a partial BCA for illustration to, to really just analyze whether there would be a net benefit to consumers or not, because some consumers win and some consumers lose in that example. But you're completely right that that ignores other stakeholders that would belong in the BCA, like farmers and industry. Um, so yes, you can do that. You can just imagine that the more stakeholders you include in the analysis, which you, I mean, for proper BCA, if you're doing 
depends on the objective. I mean, if you're just trying to objective answer the question, do consumers win or lose as a whole? Um, that's one question. But it, then you could say, does society win or lose as a whole? First of all, how do you, that part of my point is how do you even make that a sensible question? But um, but you would want to include all of those other stakeholders. But as you do that, then you have to expand the analysis, which obviously technically becomes a bigger challenge because then you have to think about farmers' utilities functions and you know how they're experiencing the profits, the change in profits from their farm, um, what their risk aversion is, all of that stuff. And you have to do the same for industry. Think about the gain, the profits to industry uh, or the loss maybe to the pesticide companies who now don't have as much demand for their product with gene drives. All of that stuff, in theory, in principle, would be you would need to include in that type of analysis, which you can imagine becomes a pretty monumental exercise. So. Okay. We have just two minutes left. So hopefully your answer to this next question can um, fit into that, but I think it's actually pretty broad. So from Kara Greger, she says, great PowerPoint, Zach. I am curious if you think the standard CBA approach will be modified and accepted in the coming years, decades, to have a broader range of impacts and benefits across stakeholders. There is much more emphasis now than ever before to factor in stakeholder needs and decision-making. Will this standard approach shift substantially, you think? Um, well, I can't forecast the future. Thank you for the question, Cara. Um, but uh, I'm optimistic that, um, that it will because in the economics profession, in the literature, there is a lot of Increase, I would say, increasing attention being paid, especially in environmental economics, for example. There's a lot more attention being paid to environmental justice, so a lot of empirical work being done on environmental justice. And um, and actually, that paper that I referred to that I published was part of a special issue on inequality and in the environment. Actually, so it was a special issue in an environmental economics journal that was aimed specifically at looking at um, inequality and the environment. And so I think this topic is. It's kind of a hot topic in uh, empirical or applied economics right now, which is a good thing. And uh, hopefully that'll filter. I mean, it doesn't always, it's not always the case, but there is a very, I think, a rich uh, pipeline between academic uh, economics, uh, empirical economics, and the government and policy. And so there is a pretty feasible path for the results uh, from this type of increased academic work informing the practice of BCA going forward. And in fact, it's one o'clock, I see. But there's already there's already examples where BCA has been modified, so uh, where these types of social values in other contexts have, um, have been recognized as not being present. And so I think there's a pretty good chance, actually, the nuts and this could be improved in an applied way. Yeah, great. Well, thank you so much for all of that information. And thank you to everyone for coming and listening and asking good questions. And if everyone would help me thank Zach um, for a very detailed uh, talk and for getting us to think more deeply about CBA, not DCA. Um, then, uh, yes. And then just to remind everyone, next week we will be in person in the 1911 building. Um, okay, great. Thank you, everyone. See you next week.